grade and the kids in the kids' choir to head off to children's church and the kids' choir if they wish. And Would you open your Bibles with me this morning to Hebrews chapter 2. Today we're studying verses 5 to 9. It's on page 1184, 1184 in the Pew Bibles. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 5 to 9. So we continue our march through Hebrews. Let me just read the text this morning. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 5 to 9 says, It is not to angels that he has subjected the world to come about which we are speaking. But there is a place where someone has testified, What is man that you are mindful of him? the Son of Man, that you care for Him. You made Him a little lower than the angels. You crowned Him with glory and honor and put everything under His feet. In putting everything under Him, God left nothing that is not subject to Him. Yet at present, we do not see everything subject to Him. But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels, now crowned with glory and honor because He suffered death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. A couple uh, years back, I had a guy come over to my place to replace a part on our sprinkler system. And he was a really friendly guy, you know, easily, you know, liked to talk and asked me what I did for a living. So I told him and he said, oh, my mom's a Christian. She goes to church. She likes the Bible. I go sometimes too. I like it. And then out of the blue, he just fires off. But I don't believe Jesus is God. And I was like... Whoa, you know, okay, I'm not typically used to people just shooting that right out there. But, you know, I was thinking about it afterwards, and probably, even though most people wouldn't just fire that right out in a conversation about religion, well, first of all, we wouldn't be having a conversation about religion here in New England, but, uh, you know, were we to have one, we wouldn't be talking right about what one believes about Jesus being God or not. Uh, But but I suspect that many people... uh, might have a struggle with that particular Christian doctrine. You know, this is a core Christian belief that Jesus is God. And I suspect many people are like, really? I mean, Jesus, great teacher. Jesus, amazing man of history. But God, I mean, that's, that's a whole nother level. Um, and yet, you know, we're looking here in Hebrews chapter 1 that we just finished a couple weeks ago, and we have a very uh, clear view of Jesus as God in Hebrews chapter 1. Uh, so, you know, for instance, look at Hebrews chapter 1, verses 2 to 3. It says, But in these last days He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed heir of all things, and through whom He made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of His being, sustaining all things by His powerful Word. This is an extremely high understanding of who Jesus is. Uh, theologians would say that the author of Hebrews has a high Christology. You know, he, he has an exalted view of the person of Jesus. It, it's as high as it gets, really, to say that he's the creator, he's the sustainer. And, and I'm, I'm just saying that you know, we accept this as part of an article of faith as Christians of who Jesus is. But for someone who maybe isn't a Christian, you know, they're like, really? Are you sure? And there's probably different reasons why someone might struggle with the idea of Jesus as God. I want to just highlight two this morning. I'm sure we could list more. But I want to highlight two, and I'm not picking these at random, but I think that they come out of the text that we're about to study. I think one reason someone might struggle with the idea of Jesus as God is because, well, Jesus was a human. And Christians say, right, we believe he was a human. And the skeptic says, no, 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 you're not listening. (laughs) 
He's a human. He's part of this world. You know, how could that be God? You know, if, if a person were to walk through this door all of a sudden and say, excuse me, I'd like everyone's attention, please. Uh, I'm God. <clears throat> And I'm here uh, to let you know that I created you, that I'm sustaining you by my powerful word, that I'm the exact representation of God's being, I'm the radiance of God's glory. You know, we'd be like, okay, ushers, could you make a call real quick? You know, because we have a problem here. Uh, And yet, this is what we're saying about Jesus, this Jesus, this historical figure. Uh, It is just simply a historical fact that Jesus was a real person. You know, believers, non-believers, atheists, Christians, accept this. This is just, you know, in history. It's, it's not only in the Bible, it's recorded outside of the Bible. So the reality of Jesus as a great religious reformer, even a person who was martyred on a cross, is simply historical fact. But as God, Jesus as God? And I, I think skeptics may wonder, like, you know, maybe Christians have just kind of gotten carried away and we've sort of inflated him like one of those big Macy's Thanksgiving Day balloons and, you know, sort of turned him into something greater than he ever really intended to be. A second objection to Jesus as God that, that we will see addressed in this text specifically is the fact that the world is still as messed up now as before he came. Okay? So Jesus comes. We're like, yay, the kingdom of God is here. The Son of God is here. And Jesus goes, and the world is still broken. There is still injustice there is still brokenness in our lives. Uh, there is still violence and corruption and war and poverty. And you know, it's like, where's the kingdom of God if he really was the kingdom, the king of heaven come down to earth? So these are things I, I think people struggle with. In other words, there's a disconnect between the Jesus of Hebrews chapter 1 in, to some people and the, and the Jesus we know from history. Uh, or as many scholars uh, would say, between the Jesus of faith and the Jesus of history. But what we see here in Hebrews chapter 2, verses 5 to 9 this morning, I think what's being built here is a bridge. There's a being a built a bridge across this sort of um, cognitive chasm between the Jesus of heaven, of Hebrews 1, and as we'll see, the Jesus of earth from Hebrews chapter 2, verses 10 to 18. So that 5 to 9 is that transitional bridge from one to the other. And so, uh, that's what I want to do this morning, is try to build that bridge with you. And the bridge is built, interestingly enough, by studying Psalm chapter 8, which we already read this morning. So, let's just dive into the text and see if we can get from here to there. It says in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 5, It is not to angels that he has subjected the world to come, about which we are speaking. So, uh, here we have this theme of angels again being brought up in Hebrews. And the Son is superior to the angels. That theme was replayed all throughout chapter 1. But then he switches to ver- in verse 6. He wants to take us now back to Psalm 8. Here's where the bridge begins to be built. He said, there is a place where someone has testified. And we get this quotation from Psalm 8. What is man that you are mindful of him? The son of man that you care for him. You made him a little lower than the angels and crowned him with glory and honor and put everything under his feet. And so now we move from Jesus as the exalted, eternal creator God to this psalm which is a reflection on our condition as human beings. We're moving from heaven to earth now in the flow of, the, of Hebrews. And what I think we need to do is we need to look at Psalm 8 in its original context to really grasp it. So take a bookmark, if you will, put it here in Hebrews, and let's turn back to Psalm chapter 8. 
on page 535. Let's look at what Psalm 535 was uh, Psalm 8 was originally about in page 535, and try to build this bridge between the Jesus of faith, quote unquote, and the Jesus of history. Because Psalm chapter 8, we if you were here at the beginning of the service, this was our opening scripture reading. And notice that this is a psalm of praise and worship. This uh, would be sung during a worship time among the people of Israel. And notice how it begins. Verse 1, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is Your name in all the earth. Look how it ends. Verse 8, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is Your name in all the earth. That's the theme of this. It's exalting God for His greatness. And what is it about God in particular that we're going to be focusing in on? And the answer is it's, it's His mercy and grace in allowing human beings such an exalted place in His wonderful creation. So look at verse uh, 2. Or verse 1, He says, You have set Your glory above the heavens, Psalm 8, verse 1. From the lips of children and infants You have ordained praise because of Your enemies to silence the foe and the avenger. He says, When I consider the work of Your fingers, the moon and the stars which You have set in place, when I go out at night and just stare up at the sky and think about this amazing world that You have created, He says, Verse 4, what is man that you're mindful of him? How do you even pay attention to us? The son of man that you care for him. You made him a little lower than the heavenly beings. Uh, you crowned him with glory and honor. You made him ruler over the works of your hands and you put everything under his feet. All flocks and herds and beasts of the field, the birds of the air, the fish of the sea, all that swim the paths of the sea. So this is a psalm of praise to God that he has taken measly human beings like us and put us in an amazing position of glory, honor, and authority in His creation. Now, what is Psalm 8 talking about? I think Psalm 8 is coming from somewhere else. I think Psalm 8 is itself a reflection on another Scripture. Just reading that, does that sound like another part of the Bible to you? I think it's come from Genesis chapter 1. Sorry, so you're following me here? Uh, Hebrews is quoting Psalm 8, and Psalm 8 is a reflection on Genesis chapter 1. So there's this chain of of reflection going on here. So take another bookmark and put it here in Psalm 8. So I guess you have two bookmarks now. And let's go back to Genesis 1. Let's go back to where this whole thing starts. And then we'll trace the... So we're moving backwards. Then we're going to trace this chain back forward and see how it all connects. So go back to Genesis 1. Eh, it's on page 1 in your pew Bible. And um, look at verse 24. Actually... It might be page 2. Genesis chapter 1, verse 24. This is the original creation story. Here we are in the sixth day of creation. It says in verse 24, God said, Let the land produce living creatures according to their kinds, livestock, creatures that move along the ground, and wild animals, each according to its kind. And it was so. God made the wild animals according to their kinds, the livestock according to their kinds, and all the creatures that move along the ground according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. So God makes all the animals, you get the phrase, according to their kind, according to their kind, according to their kind, according to their kind. And then He comes to human beings in verse 26, and it is not made according to their kind. God said, let us make man in our image. So something distinct and amazing is now taking place with the creation of people. We are being made in the image of God. He says, let us make man in our image, in our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock, over all the earth, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So, God created man in His image, and in the image of God He created him. 
Male and female, He created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Boy, there is so much there. That's a whole sermon series. But I just want to highlight two points quickly to you this morning. Notice two things, the two major themes about God creating humans. Number one, we're made in God's image. That we are unique. Human beings are not just chimpanzee version 2.0. Something unique has taken place. Human beings are created in the image of God. That word image is really interesting. It's the, actually the Hebrew word for idol. So if you were to go and worship an idol, it's the same word. It's a selim. It's a, an image. So just as an idol, a statue, supposedly represented the image of, of the God behind it, so in a sense, we're God's statues. We're, we were meant to be His representations on earth. We were to live in a, a state of obedience and love and worship with God and to extend His glory throughout the earth. We were His image bearers, His representatives on earth, His vicars, if you will, human beings were created to be. And notice the second thing. Not only were we made in God's image, but secondly, we were commissioned to subdue the earth. Look at verse 28. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. And to rule. Uh, Theologians have a term for this important verse. They call it the cultural mandate. You You hear theologians talk about the cultural mandate. This is where it is, right here. And it's the idea that God created human beings in His image as His unique representations to then go into all the earth and to take God's glory invested in them and to spread it by multiplying and subduing the earth. By the creation of music, through the arts, through investigation and science and the creation of technology, through the creation of human culture, we were to go into all the world and and to glorify God by extending His rule through us. So that was the original picture. Human beings in harmony with God, fulfilling God's purposes in the world, in harmony with the world, in harmony with each other, so that almost literally as human beings spread across the earth, God's glory would be spreading across the earth. So that the earth might be filled with the glory of God as reflected in His image bearers. I mean, it was an amazing picture until something went terribly wrong. And that's Genesis chapter 3 where these image bearers who have this amazing calling and purpose to be God's representatives on earth suddenly said, you know, why do I have to be number two? <laughs> you know, this ima- I'm, I'm the image of God. <laughs> you know, what, what would it be like to be number one? And that's the story of the human race. This is, you know, you hear this, this word sin. That's sin. is human beings saying, number two is not enough. I want to be number one. And so human beings rebelled against God. We staged a mutiny. We took over the planet. And we have ruined it. We've ruined ourselves. We've ruined each other. We we still are in this act of building culture. But rather than culture now being a beautiful expression of the glory and wonder of God, it's now this, this corrupted thing. And so this is the story of the human race. Great potential... Great possibilities, great gifts, but always sabotaged and undercut by our rebellion and our sin nature. You know, see, you see an athlete on TV, an amazing athlete, you know, with almost godlike abilities to, to hit a ball or to run or jump, and like, look at that guy, he's amazing. And people almost worship this incredible physical potential in the person. And kids get t shirts with the athlete's name on it, and, you know, everyone loves this guy. And then, 
pulled over for drunk driving or caught in this act or that act. And you're like, oh, but you are a role model. You are so much. And that's the story of the human, the human condition. Uh, you, you know, who are you voting for in November? They're going to disappoint you. Whoever it is, you know. Do you really think we're going to create a utopia through one candidate or the other? You know, they're, they're people. And so they have great potential, great gifts, great ideas. But there's always this disappointment. And, you know, it's not just others. It's me. I see this, this duality, this alloy between image of God and sin within myself. I see it in myself. I, I had a great conversation a couple weeks ago with a, a, a wonderful Christian lady and just a mature, godly Christian who spent her life serving God and serving others. And we were just talking about, it was funny, we came to this topic, and we were both just commiserating that, you know, at this stage in our Christian lives, we ought to be over this. <laughs> but we still struggle with pride and, you know, self-will and self-righteousness. And we were both saying, you know, when am I going to be free? You know, when we finally get to eternity, to be free from this, this walking paradox and contradiction within us. So, now let's go forward to Psalm 8. What is Psalm 8 then? It is a retrospect at God's mercy in creating human beings and giving us such an amazing position in His universe. What is man that you're mindful of him? The son of man that you care for him? You made him a little lower than the heavenly beings. You crowned him with glory and honor. You know, look what you've done for human beings. What an amazing position you've put people in. But there's also, I think, by Psalm 8 quoting this passage and sort of reasserting that human beings are to be rulers over all that God has given them, there's also this forward-looking hope that, that comes out of attention. The fact is, we have not fulfilled Genesis 1. We have not fulfilled Psalm chapter 8. We've abysmally failed. You know, if this is our job description and we were to come up for a review, it's not going to be good. We failed to perform according to our job description as God has created us in this world. And so there's a sense of tension, I think. The fact that Psalm 8 reasserts that human beings love everything put under their feet, that they'll be rulers and God's representatives is undercut by the fact that that's not how it's turned out. So not only is this psalm looking back, but I think simply by the virtue of quoting it, that it's looking forward to say, how will this be resolved? Will human beings just, you know, sort of muddle along like this until the sun burns out or we all blow each other up with nuclear weapons? I mean, how long is it going to go? Is this just the human condition forever? And the writer of Hebrews, now jump forward to Hebrews, picks up on this tension. Okay? He quotes Psalm 8. Go back to Hebrews 2, verse 6. What is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? You made him a little lower than the angels. You crowned him with glory and honor and put everything under his feet. And the writer of Hebrews says, in putting everything under him, God left nothing that is not subject to him. In other words, look, everything means everything. So when God, it says God's going to put everything under his feet, that means everything. Let's take the word seriously. Yet at present... We do not see everything subject to Him. It's not happening. So, so what, what's going to happen to God's plan? Did God fail? Did we completely ruin it? Did God just make this world and we took it over and now God's like, well, there's nothing I can do. You know, they've run amok and just sort of seal it off and let them you know, have at it. Is that, is that the plan? 
We don't see everything subject to Him. But then verse 9, but we see Jesus. And this is where the bridge is built. Who was made a little lower than the angels, now crowned with glory and honor because He suffered death so that by the grace of God He might taste death for everyone. So I think what the author of Hebrews is saying is that Jesus is the fulfillment of God's plans for us as human beings. That everything we were meant to be and have so catastrophically failed to do by our rebellion against God, God has brought Jesus and He fulfills Psalm chapter 8. So Psalm chapter 8 is not just a look back at what God did then, but it's also reinterpreted Christologically as seen fulfilled in Jesus. Jesus is the last Adam. He is Adam, verse 2.0. He is the, the true man. He is what all of us were intended to be. And so He fulfills God's plan. He perfectly bears the image of God. He perfectly obeys God's leadership. You know, God tells them to do this. Jesus is here and they move in perfect sync. He is everything that God intended for human beings to be. And so He fulfills Hebrews chapter 8. Or, or, sorry, i got to keep this straight. Psalm chapter 8 in Hebrews chapter 2. Now notice this. This is so cool. Oh, I love this. I was just going bananas about this this week. Look at Hebrews chapter 2, verses 7 and 8. This quote from, from Psalm uh, 8. He says, You made him a little lower than the angels. You crowned him with glory and honor and put everything under his feet. Notice what the writer of Hebrews has done. That has now become an outline for the life stages of Jesus' ministry. So he's taken that psalm about human beings and has now used it as an outline for what, God, for what Jesus has gone through. S- step one, you made him a little lower than the angels. What was that? That was his humiliation on the cross. He brings this up in verse 9. But we see Jesus who was made a little lower than the angels, now crowned with glory and honor, because he suffered death, so that by the grace of God he may t- might taste death for everyone. So when Jesus died on the cross, he was fulfilling this need to be made lower than the angels. He who is above the angels allowed Himself to be made lower than the angels. And then after He rose from the dead, what happened? Look back at verse 7. You crowned Him with glory and honor. So He was crucified, buried, raised. He's ascended to the Father's right hand. He's now been crowned with glory and honor. In fact, uh, we've seen this already in Hebrews. Look back at Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3. Notice the, the same idea is communicated here. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3. It said, After he had provided purification for sins, there he was made lower than the angels, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. So there's that flow. Okay? And we see it in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 9. But we see Jesus, who was made lower than the angels, now crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death. So there's, there's a logic to it. He suffered death. He's now been exalted to God's right hand. And then we come to the last stage of the journey, which is in chapter 8. Uh, sorry, verse 8. You crown him with glory and honor, and here's the last stage. You put everything under his feet. Now, when does that take place? When Christ returns. So there's still a piece of it that is left unfulfilled. So Jesus fulfills everything that we were supposed to be, everything we know in our hearts God has called us to do, but we just like... I'm, I'm not doing it. Humanity has not done it. Christ has done. And He, was, he fulfilled it by being uh, made lower than the angels through His suffering and death, by being exalted to God's right hand, and someday to return 
and to put all his enemies and everything under his feet. So now, let's quickly go back and review the two questions and objections that one might have to the idea that Jesus is God and see how this text sort of ties all these things together. Uh, the first objection is Jesus was a human. And if you're human, you're not God. I mean, you, how could you be both? That doesn't make any sense. Why, why would a human be God? What, what's the reason for that? What's the logic? And number two, why is the world still so messed up even after Jesus came? If he really is God and Savior and Redeemer and Messiah, why is the world still broken? And I'm going to take those two questions. Let's take the second one first because that's what we see here in Hebrews. And the answer we find in Hebrews is that the reason the world is still broken, even though Jesus has come, is that there is a, a time between him being crowned with glory and honor and everything put under his feet. That there is a time period that we are now in between the promise and the fulfillment. Look again at verse 8. In putting everything under him, God left not nothing that was not subject to him. Here we go. Yet at present, we do not see everything subject to him. Right now, we do not yet see it, but we will see it. So that there's an acknowledgement that something is a situation now that will not always be. But now we don't see things subject to him. Now, here's the interesting. Here's another cool thing. Who's the him in verse 8? In putting everything under him, God left nothing that was not subject to him. Yet at present, we do not see everything subject to him. Who's the him? Is it human beings or is it Jesus? I think it was left ambiguous on purpose without an antecedent to the him so that it applies really to both. It's human beings failing to fulfill their calling, but also Jesus now having not fully completed his, his mission. It, it still is yet to be fully realized. And this is what we see in Hebrews, that there's a time delay between the first coming of Christ and his exaltation and when Jesus will come again. You know, we say this in the Apostles' Creed. He was crucified, dead, and buried. On the third day, he rose again from the, uh, from the dead, ascended to heaven, sits at the right hand. And from thence... He will come to judge. He will come in the future to judge the living and the dead. So there's a time delay. Look back at Hebrews chapter 1, verse 13. Here's this same time delay. He says, To which of the angels did God ever say, Sit at my right hand until... So there's something in the future. You're going to sit there for a while until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. And I think that idea is communicated here again. So... So, you know, why is the world still broken? And the answer is, because Jesus ain't done yet. It's not finished. He's coming back. You know? And, and see, I don't think this is just an objection for skeptics. I, frankly, I think this is probably an issue that Christians will probably wrestle with even more. You know? Why, Jesus? I love you, Jesus. I believe in you. I follow you. I believe you're God. I believe you did die on the cross for me. So, Jesus, I need you to fix something for me. <laughs> if you love me and I love you, I mean, what's the big deal? You know, fix something for me. You know, I I'm praying for healing. I've been praying for healing. I believe you can heal people. I've seen you heal people. I have, I'm stepping out in faith that you can heal, but you haven't healed me. You know, Lord, there's this situation that I'm wrestling with with this, this person, and why can't you just fix them? Why can't you fix my kid, fix my spouse, fix my boss? 
You know, I'm, I trust you, God, that you're going to provide for me financially. I believe that if I seek your kingdom first, that you'll take care of my physical needs. But you know what? It's been seven months. I've been out of work. So, God, where are you? And so we have these unanswered questions as Christians. You know, why the delay? Why hasn't Jesus intervened on our behalf? And the answer we see is he's not yet finished. So why wait? You know, that's a question. Why wait? What's, what's the big deal? I mean, come on. Don't you think it would be a better world, Jesus, if you just stepped in now? And let me just tell you why Jesus has delayed. It's very clear in the Scripture. It's because he's patient and gracious and he wants people to come to salvation. He's still gathering his elect. If he were to come now and fix it, he would crush his enemies under his feet. And that would mean some of you would be crushed under his feet. And so he's patient. He's gracious. The gospel is still going to all the nations. There are tribes in Afghanistan that have not heard the name of Jesus. And he is compassionate. He wants his name to be proclaimed to the tribes in Afghanistan and the people in Iran and even the people here in New England. He wants the gospel to be proclaimed. He's patient because he he knows that when he comes... That's the end. And it's over. And so he's gathering his elect from the four corners of the earth, slowly but surely. You know, it's, uh, look at it this way. Sometimes when, you know, when you talk to someone who doesn't believe in the gospel and in Christianity, they'll raise all kinds of objections. Well, what about this? What about that? What about you know, all these things? Here's two objections that you'll often hear raised that are sort of at the top of the objection list. One objection is, uh, if God is good and God is in control, why is there evil and suffering in the world? Problem of evil. Here's another objection that you'll hear raised. I don't believe God would ever send people to hell and be judgmental. God's a loving God, right? The frustrating thing to me is both those objections come out of the same mouth. And I'm like, eh, you get one or you get the other. You don't get both, okay? Why is there evil in the world? Well, God's going to fix that on the judgment day. He's going to come and he's going to judge sin. He's going to put evil down. Well, God is a loving God. He would never judge good people. But I thought you just said there's evil in the world. You can't have it both ways. This is God's answer. It's to bring judgment and to destroy all that is evil, all that is is still hostile to Christ. And so he delays to be patient with us. You know, these are the last days. This is the period between Christ's exaltation and his second coming. This is the last phase. This is it. And he holds off his judgment until the time is right, until finally the Father says, Arise. Arise. You know, in the Sistine Chapel, there's an amazing painting of, of the Judgment Day. And in this painting, you see the time has come and you see Jesus getting up from His throne and you see Mary there and, and she's like this. She's turning away because, you know, the hour of His wrath has come and it's like the time has come. And, and it's almost like heaven cannot bear to see what will happen when the justice of God arises. So yes, there's a delay, but it's so that the gospel can go forward. So let me tell you, let me give you a challenge, those of you who are Christians. The next time you feel yourself overwhelmed with that prayer, fix it, God, fix it. Why aren't you fixing it? Let me, let me tell you what to do. Just stop thinking that for a second. Get a hold of your thoughts. And instead, realize that the reason it's not all fixed yet is because God wants to save some people. He's going to save some people, His elect. And I want you, instead of thinking, fix it, fix it, fix it, to pray specifically for someone you love who needs to know Christ. And then I want you to pray for revival in New England. 
And then I want you to either open the newspaper or turn on cable news. And the first country that's mentioned, I want you, besides America, America too, the first country that's mentioned, I want you to pray for that country. If they talk about, you know, the stock market crashing in Iceland, you know, pray for Iceland. Then God's gospel would move forward there. Because this gospel must be proclaimed to all the nations and then the end shall come, Jesus said. And that really leads us then into the second objection. The first is that why, if Christ is God, Jesus is God, why is the world still broken? The answer is he has not yet completed his work and he's, he's winning a people for himself. The second answer is there in verse nine, uh, The second question, actually the first question, we're taking a second, is if Jesus is human, how can he be God? I mean, how can a human be God? It just seems silly. But here's the answer. There in verse 9, we see Jesus who was made a little lower than the angels, now crowned with glory and honor because He suffered death so that by the grace of God He might taste death for, on behalf of, in place of, is what that Greek word means, everyone. He's tasting death for us. So Jesus came, became a human being, God the Son became a human being, to live the human life that none of us have ever lived and could never live and no one ever will live and to die the death that every one of us deserve. So he obeyed where we have disobeyed and he was punished for what we have done. So that's why he had to become a human being because we're not going to save ourselves. We're not going to build a utopia. We're not going to fix the human condition through technology. We, have, we are helpless as human beings. And unless God himself comes down, it's not going to get better. So that's why he had to become a human being, to adopt and to take on our humanity, to be that second Adam, and to die in our place for the consequences of our sins. See, the amazing thing isn't that Jesus as a human was God. The amazing thing is that God freely chose to become a human being. That's the, that's the mind-boggling question. Why would God do that? Why would God become a human to save those who've rebelled against Him? And the answer is, He is an awesome, merciful, and compassionate God. And the, the mercy and grace of God displayed in Psalm 8 is now taken to a new level in the coming of Christ. That God not only would create us, but that God would recreate us and restore us it's just amazing. So that we can have life version 2.0. The new life in Christ. It's just, it's an astounding thing. There's no other religion like that in the world. It says that there's a God who came down to save people by becoming a human himself and taking their sin. It's utterly unique in all the world religions. It's so amazing, so mind-boggling. It's like, who came up with this? Who would ever think this up? It's so incredible. So, brothers and sisters, that's why when we say Jesus is God, we're not muttering some embarrassing doctrine under our breath. We are, we are marveling in, in worshipful wonder. We are, we are proclaiming in, in joy-filled ecstasy. We are speaking in an almost you know, speechless gratitude that our Creator has come to forgive us and to save us by giving Himself in our place. It's just amazing. It's amazing. 
So brothers and sisters, don't be ashamed of the doctrine that Jesus is God. It's not weird. It is our salvation and our life. And without it, there is no life. And there is no gospel. And there is no salvation. And so let us cling to the gospel of the God who came down to save His creation. Let's pray. Lord Jesus Christ, we, we just worship You this morning even as the disciples gathered around You on the day of Your ascension and it says in the Scriptures they worshipped You as they began to realize who You were. And Jesus, we worship You this morning as through Your Word and through Your Holy Spirit we are being shown who You are. And Lord Jesus, we pray that we would cling to this understanding of You as our God not in a pugnacious or a combative way, but Lord, as that we would cling to it as drowning people clinging to a life preserver in a storm. Because Jesus, it is only you, it is only you, God, who could save a people as lost as us. So Jesus, we love you, we worship you, and I just pray that you'd give us patient endurance, that you'd give us staying power to keep pressing on in the world that is not yet fully redeemed. And that, God, you'd help us as Christians to keep praying, to keep trusting, to keep looking beyond ourselves, to looking beyond our lives to those who need Christ around us. Lord Jesus, be exalted in our hearts and minds this morning. We pray this all in your name. Amen. Would you turn in the celebration hymnal to number 347? Number 347. And can it be, and can it be that I should gain? Would you please stand and let's sing together.